I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Can you imagine if that was my new podcast song, though? It'd be fucking incredible. Just like... (laughs) Welcome to Sauce Talk, a podcast exploring how sports, the meditation, and mental training relate to a well-lived life. This is Billy Hansen. And today's episode is going to be an interview with Breen Weeks. Breen is an elite basketball trainer who works with NBA and WNBA players. Some notable players that he works with includes WNBA All-Star Kayla McBride and NBA Power Forward TJ Leaf. And I wanted to make this episode specific to the art of basketball training and then I think other athletes and other sports could extrapolate um, what we talk about to their own sports. But first, I want to just share a bit about my experience and how my attitude towards basketball training progressed as my career developed and some of the thoughts that I've been exploring now. Um, So I I used to love the discipline of basketball training. I was kind of a drudge. I loved the hard work and the consistency. It was kind of an anchor to my day and the incremental improvement that came with it. But there was also quite a few trials and tribulations that came with my basketball training, especially in my college career when my confidence was down and I was underperforming and I really felt like I needed to get better as a player in various ways. I'd go home for the summer really motivated to, okay, this is going to be my great summer. I'm going to turn my career around. And I'd often show up to the gym with just this kind of vague idea for, okay, I need to get better today. And I would kind of put my workouts together on the fly And I'd often leave the gym not really knowing if I had done enough or if I had done too much. I'd be frustrated with how my shot still didn't feel right. Or, um, yeah, or some other days I'd feel elated and be like, okay, my shot's great. And it was this very kind of rocky up and down process where I never really felt fully satisfied or locked in that I was doing the right things. And then during the season, my training became very reactive to my performance on the game, in the game. It was as if I was just training in order to play well. And so if I had a bad shooting night and my confidence was down, then my next few days in the gym would often be very um, restless and I'd overdo it and I'd try to overcompensate. And if I was shooting well, if I was in a good groove, then I wouldn't go to the gym at all sometimes. I'd feel like, oh, you know, my shot's good. I don't want to mess anything up. Or I'd just go get a few rhythm jump shots in. And I think that this reactivity was all anchored to my, it was a very results-oriented mind state that I was in. And when I really found my groove as a senior, I became much more consistent and balanced in my training regimen. So no matter if I shot one for 10 from three or six for nine from three or somewhere in between the night before, my shooting workout was going to be the same the next day. I had a plan, I had a rebounder, it was crisp, my phone was away and I was locked in and my, my practice came, became just as much about my mind state as it did about the external results. So I made sure to remain, you know, I didn't, I didn't let myself get too frustrated or too prideful as I performed my workouts and they were structured. So before the week, I knew what I was going to do on Tuesday. I knew what I was going to do on Thursday. I knew what my pregame shooting workout was, and it wasn't just um, dependent on my current mind state or level of confidence or whatnot. And I think that the the Zen attitude, I've been reading some more Zen books lately. I think the Zen attitude relates about practice relates directly to this um, different style that I found as a senior. Uh, so Zen is very strict. You, you know, you have you're told the students are told to sit in a very strict style of posture. You practice a lot. It's rigid. It's disciplined. But at the same time, it's also not goal oriented. So students are told not to practice in order to feel better or in order to reach enlightenment or in order to improve themselves. You just practice because that's what you do and you practice for the sake of practicing. So I'm going to read a passage from this great book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, about this style. So, and this is uh, uh, (laughs) Shunryu Suzuki. I'm going to butcher that for sure. But so he writes, There are several poor ways of practice that you should understand. Usually when you practice Zazen, which is Zen meditation, you become very idealistic and you set up an ideal or a goal which you strive to attain and fulfill. But as I have often said, this is absurd. When you are idealistic, you have some gaining idea within yourself. By the time you attain your ideal or goal, your gaining idea 
will create another ideal. So as long as your practice is based on a gaining idea and you practice Zazen in an idealistic way, you'll have no time to actually attain your ideal. Moreover, you'll be sacrificing the meat of your practice because your attainment is always ahead. You will always be sacrificing yourself now for some ideal in the future. You end up with nothing. This is absurd. It is not adequate practice at all. But even worse than this idealistic attitude is to practice Zazen in competition with someone else. This is a poor, shabby kind of practice. Our Soto way puts an emphasis on Shikantaza, or just sitting. Actually, we do not have any particular name for our practice. When we practice Zazen, we just practice it. And whether we find joy in our practice or not, we just do it. Even though we are sleepy and we are tired of practicing Zazen, of repeating the same thing day after day, even so, we continue our practice. Whether or not someone encourages our practice, we just do it. I love, really love that attitude. It's like the, the attitude of giving everything you have to the practice regardless of the results that come from it. And this, this creates a more sustainable attitude towards practice, right? So another example of this was in high school, I put in a lot of work and I, I missed a lot of parties and I shot up every day after school instead of hanging out with my friends. And I loved my training and I loved going to the gym with my opa or my dad. But there was part of me that thought like, well, if I don't go D1, if I don't achieve some external goal, then it would all in some ways have been a waste. And I look back on that as an absurd, as an absurd attitude. The training was beautiful for the training's sake. And I think that we can, um, we can learn a lot from that, that attitude in training in sports or in our careers or in anything else. So today's episode is with Breen, as I mentioned before. Um, I, I loved this conversation for many reasons. I was planning to focus, as you'll hear, specifically on basketball training philosophy and everything else in that regard. But I quickly found that Breen's basketball journey was too interesting to leave before, you know, we spent about 20 minutes on his journey and he has a, you know, he goes through the normal trials and tribulations, the all too normal trials and tribulations of college athletics. And on top of that, he deals with just a tragic sickness in the family that stemmed from a freak accident. So I won't spoil it and I'll let you, I'll let him tell you on the podcast. We talk about how Breen overcame performance anxiety and how his mental challenges influenced his philosophy on how he works with his players now. We talk about how to vet trainers if you're looking to find a good one and other topics. And as always, if you like the podcast, you might consider subscribing to my newsletter, which is Sunday Sauce. And you can find that at billyhansen.net forward slash sauce. And you can help me out by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's get to the episode. Here is Breen Weeks. All right, I'm here with Breen Weeks. Breen, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Billy. Really appreciate it. Yeah, man. So why don't we, I want to focus this conversation on your skill set as a trainer and about basketball training in general and especially the, the mental side. But um, I think your basketball bio will help set up the context for that. So why don't you just give me a history of your um, basketball journey and you can st- be as long-winded or as as brief as you want there. Maybe start with recruiting in high school and then take me through your basketball journey. Okay, sounds good. So I went to uh, Cathedral Catholic High School uh, for four years, technically three years, one year at University of San Diego High School. During this time coming up, freshman and sophomore, I was probably considered one of the better players out of San Diego at that time. So I had, you know, some of the Pac-12s, the WCC, a lot of the Ivy Leagues. Um, So I was growing attention from, you know, schools such as those my freshman and sophomore year. My dad ended up getting really, really sick, deathly ill. So that's actually when my my recruitment went way different after that. Mm. Um, I ended up losing a lot of the the higher profile academic schools, Stanford, you know, you know, almost every one of the Ivies except Brown at the at the time. Had a great high school career though. Went on to go to a prep school 
in Maine Lee Academy and uh, had a great uh, career there. We were one of the top prep schools in the country. Mm. Um, from there, I had to come back home and uh, take care of my dad. Uh, he was going through a really, really rough patch in his in his illness. And so I came home to take care of him and I played as an unsigned senior and uh, I ended up playing AU. I had a really, really good showing spring and summer um, from the tournaments that I went to and also the camps that I went to and my recruitment um, really well, man. Uh, I had a lot of a lot of schools on me and I was narrowing down the list. And I ended up finding out that I was a half credit ineligible mm. um, to go to Division One, and uh, yeah, so literally a half credit. Um, my sophomore year, I um, received a D in um, biology, um, and uh, so during that whole time, so in those five years, no one told me that I was a half credit ineligible, mm. and so I'm 19 at this point. You know, now looking back on it and kind of what high school basketball is to this day is, uh, you know, so many people reclassify like I did or they do, you know, they they do two times. They, they hold themselves back twice or they reclassify twice or hold themselves back and then reclassify a little bit later. So now it's kind of the norm. Um, but I was I didn't want to be 19 going on 20 in high school anymore. Now, looking back on it. You know, I even had a I had two players on my prep school team that went on to play, you know, high level division one uh, so that I, I still don't know if that was the best career choice, I guess, in, in basketball. But uh, looking back on it, had I not made that decision, then um, I would have never met, you know, the uh, one of the core group of friends that I have till this day. That's, you know, considered a brother to me who you also know by the name of Deontay Goodlick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so him and I, so I ended up going to uh, uh, junior college. So I went to junior college uh, with Deontay for a year at Yavapai Community College out of Arizona, mm. and uh, which is a national JUCO. At that time, our conference is uh, either number one or number two in the country. Pardon me, Breen, uh, don't, don't mean to interject, but what's the, if you don't mind me asking, what was the status of your dad like when you left for Yavapai? Uh, it, was, it wasn't good. Mm. He's, uh, you know, it's been a really, really tough journey with, with him. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really, I'd match his, his story up with, with anyone, mm-hmm. any, any story you, you ever hear, or, you know, in America or any documentary or anything like that. Like I, I'll put my dad's story up against anybody's, mm-hmm. um, there's not a, a doctor or a nurse, um, that sees my dad's story or sees his outline on his uh, hospital visits uh, and is not amazed at how he's even still alive till this day. Hmm. Um, So kind of a a little background on my dad. Um, My dad was a vice president of the second largest coffee company in the world, right behind Starbucks is a coffee company or was at that time called Boy Coffee Company. And uh, my dad got bit by the second deadliest spider in the world, Jesus. Uh, a brown recluse. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually not even the, the, the main part of it. It was it's only the beginning. How did he get um, how did he so get my, bit? So my dad was actually helping a coworker pick up a coffee maker. And, uh, you know, a coffee maker is, is very is, is very heavy. So when you, you know, uh, a coffee maker for big hotels or little cafes and stuff like that, like these are not like many refrigerators or anything like that. They're, they're, they're bigger, um, uh, objects. So my dad was helping, it should have been a three person job, but it needed to be done, um, within the next hour. So my dad was like, you know what, I'm going to help. So my dad and his coworker picked up the coffee maker. And this isn't something that you can just look at the bottom or what you would even, you know, ever think to look at the bottom. But my dad wasn't wearing gloves as well. Mm. So my dad picked up the coffee maker, coworker picked up the coffee maker, and they walked about a, a block. And during this whole time, my dad is crushing the brown recluse spider with his finger. But he's thinking it's a metal particle of the coffee maker because it's underneath. So he's thinking it's just something that's digging into his finger. He's not thinking, you know, too much about it. It's, it's hurting, but it's not to the point where it's, you know, excruciating. And, and by all means, he just wants to get the coffee maker into the, mm-hmm. um, into the establishment. So 
Long story short, the next day, my dad's finger is about five times the size of your normal finger. God. And you can see inside of his finger to the bone. Um, and it looks you know, pretty disgusting. So my dad goes to the hospital, gets it checked out, gets you know, test run, figures out that he was bit by a brown recluse. But during that whole entire time, a brown recluse, it just bites and leaves. But my dad was crushing it the entire time. So the amount of venom my dad received mm. was, you know, close to, you know, whatever that spider had in them. And then on the flip side, my dad ended up getting on a steroid called prednisone. And uh, the hospital ended up putting him on a extremely high dosage. And um, if, any, if, you know, if, if you or anyone are um, familiar with prednisone, it's commonly used for a bronchitis. Um, for example, like you're on that for seven days and then you're off, hmm. right? So you're, you're only, when you have bronchitis and they, they give you uh, this steroid, you're only supposed to be on it for about seven days because hmm. it's so strong. Uh, my dad was on this for about five years, Jeez. six years. That's and that's just that's to treat the the recluse bite. Yeah. Okay. And um and so my dad's body became immune to it. So my dad's body was thriving off of that. It needed that because of such a high milligram um, that they had, you know, mistakenly put him on. Hmm. Um and uh you know so from that his all of his things that he's ever occurred to him have you know stemmed off of the prednisone basically stemmed off the prednisone so my dad now has had his spinal cord re-cemented three times uh he's had reconstructive back surgery twice you know my dad has had a hernia protrude through his belly button the size of a coke bottle man yeah you know but there's a long list of things so i ended up leaving yavapai and going to a community college in uh san diego Miramar Community College. Um, two of my best friends were already there. I had a good relationship with the assistant coach there, and uh, I, I ended up going there because my dad was going to have uh, seven surgeries during that time. Hmm. Um, my dad actually represented himself, uh, and in, instead of suing some of the doctors that, because my dad was on workers' comp, and workers' comp has the ability to say, hey, you're going to get this medicine, hey, you're going to be able to go to this doctor, or hey, we're not going to, we're, hey, we're not, we, we don't want to pay for that. Um, and so it got to the point where my dad was, you know, so this is from my sophomore year of high school all the way till now my sophomore year of college, hmm. right? So uh, an ample amount of time for workers comp to be dealing with my father, and they control everything. And so it got to a point where they wanted to see my dad die, hmm. like better terms, hmm. uh, because my dad was running up such a high bill. Um, but it was, you know, obviously because of so many mistakes that were made early on, one specifically being that prednisone that, you know, my dad, I mean, for example, dental work, my dad's, uh, you know, bones, his teeth all began to brittle um, and then break. So that's where the reconstructive back surgery, that's where all of this stems from the amount of dental work is prednisone because it brittles your bones after a while, mm. right? And my dad was on it, you know, since my sophomore year of high school. So, uh, you know, workers comp, my dad took workers comp to, to court, represented himself because obviously they weren't going to pay for a lawyer and, you know, we couldn't afford a lawyer and nobody wanted to take my father on because of the amount of work that was going to go into it and the lack of money that they would receive from it. And so all my dad wanted was, you know, surgeries just to, to get better. Hmm. And my dad ended up going to court winning. And uh, so my dad ended up having the surgeries that year. So, yeah, so I go back home, go to Miramar, have uh, a great season. And during this time, I'm taking care of my dad and, you know, taking 18 credits and uh, I come across, um, you know, a handful of schools during this time, some new schools. And um, I had a, a pretty, pretty good list together. Um, but or I began to question, like, who really wants me? Right. I had a lot of interest. Yeah. I had a lot of um, people talking, uh, you know, constant communication. 
But the amount of offers that I had at that time after our season, right within the first two weeks, wasn't that many. And it wasn't from some of the schools that had been showing a huge interest in me over the phone, coming to the games. You know, they did everything but offer. Hmm. Um, So then for me, I was, you know, I'm a big believer in loyalty. Um, and, uh, you know, coach Daniels at, at Regis university, he had been recruiting me since my senior year of high school. So mm. senior year of high school prep school and two years of junior college, so four years. And, uh, I always had an amazing relationship with coach Daniels, thought the world of coach Daniels. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, you know, I, everyone had always fed me, Oh, you got to go division one, got to go division one. And that was always a, a, a huge dream of mine, yeah. but something about Coach Daniels, I mean, many things that really stood out to me. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to, to take that visit more so than, than any of the other Division Ones at that time that were asking me. So my first visit was to Regis. That was kind of like the, the thing for me. It was like I wanted to go to school with Deontay. Uh, that was a big, big factor for me. And uh, we got the opportunity to do that at at this time, one of the you know top Division II conferences in, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were like, man, you know, get an opportunity to play right away, get an opportunity to make an impact, go to school together, be roommates. Like, this is a, a dream come true. Uh, so then I ended up going to Regis. We had the season that we had. Um, there is a lot that went into that season. Um, and, uh, I just felt after that season that it, it was best for, for me and my career that I end up, uh, transferring. And, uh, you know, so I ended up transferring from Regis and going to a small NAIA, um, out of Portland, Oregon, uh, Portland Bible college mm-hmm. and, uh, ended my career there, probably the, one of the most fun I've had in basketball in my lifetime. It really put into perspective what having, a, um, you know, a player coach, uh, someone that, you know, trusts you and, and puts their belief in you. And that was very, very powerful for me. And that's something that I wanted when I was transferring. It wasn't the, the level of basketball. It was more so the experience that I had. Um, and that I wanted to end my collegiate career having outside of basketball and um, on the court. And uh, Portland Bible offered, you know, everything and more than I could have ever asked for. Um, out of that, we had we played three Division Ones. Our non-conference schedule was incredible, which is another huge reason why I went there. But uh, yeah, ended my playing career there. Went on to play in Germany for uh for a season re-signed to go back to germany and again during this time my dad's not doing very well um i end up uh taking the contract i make it from san diego to chicago so i'm sitting in chicago on the phone with my dad and uh you know this is the the only time i've ever heard my dad want to give up on life. Hmm. Uh, at this time, it was a, it was a very, very, very tough time in his life, tough time with the illness. He was really, really struggling and mentally it really broke him down. Everything that was going on, you know, he called me, we talked, he was ready to give up. I hung up the phone. I got on, I waited for the third boarding call and something in my heart was telling me to go home. Uh, so I ended up taking the next flight back to San Diego during this time I'm, I'm training and, uh, I end up tearing my hip labrum. Hmm. And, uh, so then it was done. Hmm. Okay. And did you, um, we spoke in prep for this conversation. We spoke a little bit and you talked about, you had some issues with performance anxiety throughout your career at a certain point. Do you want to detail that before we jump into your training expertise? Absolutely. Cool. So I've always had anxiety. Mm. I've always had a, a, a large amount of anxiety. Um, I've always put a, a ton of pressure on myself. Pre-game, I always have, you know, anxiety. Uh, my hands sweat a ton. Mm. Uh, and that's just in normal life in general, but it, it intensifies when I, you know, before a game. 
and uh, so layup lines, my hands are like a puddle of water. Hmm. Um, get into the game, like I would, I would have to use the the, the chalk hmm. um, or the powder. Um, but I was using chalk, the same chalk that a pitcher would use. I was using that. Wow. Um, uh, yeah. So like you know, there's times where I was thinking, and you know, still I I believe that you know some shots, like the amount of sweat I have. You know, it was it was affecting that. Um, but that's obviously just a natural thing for my body. But going into the our conversation, uh, I was at the free throw line and it was in one of our our bigger games packed out, packed out our gym. And uh, I was at the free throw line and um, out of nowhere, I I felt like, you know, all, all the eyes were completely on me. Like I was completely out of my zone. Hmm. Um, it felt like, a you know, a thousand pounds was on my shoulders. And so I, you know, I went into my routine and uh, I shot the ball. And during the during my routine, I, uh, I was just hoping to, you know, hit the rim. And I ended up slamming the ball against the backboard. Hmm. And, uh, and although that was a really embarrassing moment for me at that time, it was uh, for the bigger picture career wise, my basketball career and for my, you know, my training and, and, and everything I, I believe in, in training now, it was a huge eye opener for, for me. So I slammed the ball against the backboard. And, you know, that that stuck with me, that that feeling. Mm. Um, I ended up going through the, the rest of the game, um, getting locked back in. And, and uh, but that was something that I came to my dad about. And I was like, you know, we joked about it. You know, he was like, you know, what the heck happened? Mm. And I was like, man, I, I, I couldn't tell you. Right. Like I had no idea. He had no idea. But my dad, you know, now looking back on it, my dad was uh, way ahead of his time. And I call him the guru. <laughs> Because he he was like, hey, let's let's try to get you to see a, you know, a mental coach to figure out ways in which we can get you locked in if this ever happens again. And uh, we saw, you know, a mental coach, uh, mentality coach. I ended up coming into the understanding of a go to formula of what for me and what I've seen throughout many, many players now um, has worked. Mm. And, uh, so the importance of having that and, uh, and being able to incorporate that into, you know, pregame and, and, uh, and knowing the importance of kind of like the mental approach. Nice. Nice. All right. So let's, um, let's move to your time as a trainer. So how, so there are some, you know, you've become a very successful trainer. You've have, top level hoopers that are trust you with their training and their games. What is your philosophy on training players and how did your experience as a player um, influence that? And you can pick up on any thread there you want, whether it's the mental training, you could take me through what you do, um, like what you were just describing with the, with the pregame routine mentally. So what is your, why don't you just give me an, an outline of your philosophy as a basketball trainer? Okay. Um, so for, for me, um, my training philosophy is, is really building a relationship, um, a bond with the player. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, they have their philosophy on the on-court side of things. And, and a lot of trainers talk about that for me, uh, you know, I want an individual, whether it is one time that we work together or, you know, years of work, uh, to know that my, you know, one that they can always call me. Right. So building that relationship early on. Um, so like if it is one workout, right. Like for me, I like to have the com- a conversation before, right. I want to get to know the player, you know, I want to I, just have a conversation with them and see what it is, you know, they're looking to do, um, with their career, and you know so on and so forth and but for me building a a bond a relationship early on is super super important for me nice nice so so for that 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 is the you know my core belief um but in the in the training philosophy on core for me so this has been an obsession for me since i was 14 i've i've always wanted to segue into basketball training i became obsessed with it 
uh, at an early age. So when I when I made varsity my my freshman year, I had a lot of the guys, the older guys, the juniors and seniors working out with me during this time. Hmm. Um, so they were coming with me. I was putting ourselves, you know, myself and them through a workout. Um, but I had a notebook, everything like everything was to a T. So this was always kind of like what I wanted to do. This was always I didn't know. I didn't have a, you know, Instagram to, I didn't have a trainer to look at, or I didn't know who Tim Grover was. Um, and, you know, obviously Tim Grover is a world renowned trainer of hmm. Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, so on and so forth. Right. But I didn't know who he was at 14 years old at the, at those times, you know, Kobe and Michael, they wanted their, their trainers to, to have a, you know, uh, anonymous name. They didn't want anyone to, to know who they were training with. Hmm. So, uh, you know, so that was just an obsession and a, and a huge passion for me in, in advancing my game, you know, a quote that I would hang on my wall and a quote that's really stuck with me for the rest of my life is, you know, making the game look effortless. Um, and so I was a big believer at, at this time and still to today on, you know, uh, aggressive jabs, pump fakes, uh, being able to score within three to four dribbles. Right. Um, mm. So for, for that, you know, that that's another encore um, huge belief of mine of, of uh, you know, making the game look effortless and uh, figuring out ways to efficiently help a player, you know, play the game. Nice, nice. And then what about um, I love what you said about making the game look effortless. And I actually why I think I did a workout with you once. We didn't play together, but you I think came back once to Regis and I did a workout with you. And I remember, mm -hmm. I remember being struck by the intensity and focus of it. And it seemed really productive and crisp. And so it's really cool. What about the mental side? What kind of stuff do you do with a player who might be struggling with confidence? Right. Well, let me ask you this for, for you, when you go to the free throw line or when you go, went to the free throw line, did you always have a, uh, like a go-to kind of, you know, two dribble, three dribble thing? What was your thing? Yeah. So it got much better later in my career after I had learned to meditate and I had been practicing breathing. So mm -hmm. as a senior year, and actually still, there was still, as my career ended, there was still a bit of a mismatch between my accuracy in practice and in games. So there's still, mm -hmm. I left the game with more work to do to, to reach my potential. Um, and so as if I remember correctly, as a senior, I had a routine where I would, before the ref, gave me the ball, I would visualize myself making it. And then I had a way that I stepped up to the line with a one, two step. That was the same way every time. And then I had a, a dribble. I don't remember specifically what the dribbles were, but it was in conjunction with my breath. And all of this was meant to just, and I remember feeling my feet on the floor too. All of this was just a, um, to me, it was just a method to get, place my attention on something physical and tangible and in doing that, it, it took me out of any story I was telling myself about what the score was, about how badly mm -hmm. I needed to make it, about the consequences of missing, free throw percentages, and like the coach watching, any of that. So with anything I could do to just get my mind away from stories and onto the physical nature. And then one more thing that helped me too was almost like watching myself shoot. And this happened towards the end mm -hmm. of my senior season where... I knew how to make free throws. I could make over 90 out of 100 in practice. Right. But in games, I was shooting right. mid-70s. So later in the – I just like, okay, your body knows how to do this. Just get out of the way. Just go up there right. as if someone else is shooting and watch yourself make the free throw. Right. So – and the reason I asked you is because contrary to belief is that a lot of, a lot of players, they don't have a, a true go-to, hmm. right? Like they, they may go into – their career having a go-to, but the moment something happens, their percentages, you know, drop 20%, 30%, or mm. they see a consistency and misses, they, they go away from whatever their game plan or their, you know, their free throw plan was, mm. um, because now they, they believe, oh, you know, I gotta, I gotta change it up. And so for me and what I've seen, you know, of dribbling the ball, our routine is two dribbles, sit, and as you sit, you tell yourself you're going to make it. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're talking to yourself, right, can you talk to yourself 
and hear anything else outside of the talking to yourself during that free throw time. Yeah, so that seems like another hack to to get away from the stories and the consequences. That's like a right. Yeah, because if you're if you're so in tune with what you're saying to yourself, right, the mind plays a huge huge factor in this. So if you tell yourself you're going to make it, hmm. you think, you, I mean, that's in your thoughts, you're telling yourself that, but you're also at the same time focused on the two dribbles, hmm. right? So you do the two dribbles, you're saying it, you sit, you sit into your shot, you pull up. Now that whole entire time you've been talking to yourself, you're going through your routine because it's what? A routine now. Hmm. And you're so mentally focused on the routine, what you're saying, and it's also um, you know, obviously a positive, I will make this. It's not, I need to make this right. It's, I will make this. You're, you're convincing yourself. And I've seen numbers sky high Mm -hmm. from, you know, 20, 30% increases in, 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 it comes from what I talked about prior is having that bond, that relationship, someone being able to trust in you that this is going to stick because everyone is different, right? So you have to, truly believe that this is going to work or it's not right. Or if you don't do it at the same consistency, right. If you do one dribble and you think you can sit into your shot and you can, it, you know, I've seen the two dribbles. Why? Because it's a little bit longer of time. Hmm. And you know what I mean? You're, you're mentally focusing on the words, uh, sitting in the shot. Obviously we're getting a, a good amount of legs into our shot and, uh, being able to pop up into, into that free throw. That's awesome. Yeah, free throws are a trip, man. I, I'm reading this book right now called Zen and the Art of Archery. And it's about this guy, him and his wife went to Japan and he, he approached a Zen master who is a master in archery and his wife, to pro, and his wife approached a flower arrangement Zen master and they went on these journeys together. Mm-hmm. And the way he describes archery and how he... As, as you know, the harder he tried to pull the bow back, the more wobbly his arm would be. And the harder he tried to keep his shooting hand firm, you know, the more the bow would wobble and he couldn't get the breathing right. And it ultimately took him coming up with this routine and with a, with the breath. And it was like effort without effort. And I drew so many analogies to, to shooting and then free throw specifically where when you're struggling at the free throw line, one of the worst things for me to do was just to try harder to make it like to f- try to aim the ball at the hoop. That would always make it right. worse. And right. Yeah. It's so there's some, some of those things in sports and that's one of the things that makes sports so beautiful is it's like, it's almost like you have to develop spiritually in order to get better. You can't just force your way into being into improvement. You have to find this kind of mental balance through routine and ritual and, you know, trust in yourself. And so, yeah, right. I, uh, it, it makes me want to a take up archery and then b go work on my free throws whenever I re- whenever I read this book. No, no, I mean even going off of what you just said though too, uh, you know, putting it in the in the in basketball perspective again outside of the the free throw, you know, what's the first thing that goes through a player's mind if they miss their first three to four shots in the game? Yeah, you can really spin right? out there. It's, yeah, it, yeah, nine times out of ten. It's the negativity, yeah. right? You're saying something negative to yourself, right? The mind doesn't, if you say so, if you continuously say negative things, the mind latches onto that, yeah. right? And some people from what, you know, I've found throughout the training is that a lot of people are super harsh with themselves from, yeah. you know, words like I suck, um, I'm terrible, mm. um, I'm having a terrible game. You know, what I mean, like you, you, all of these things that you're telling yourself, I can't hit a shot. I mean, how many times have you heard a friend or maybe yourself say that? Oh, yeah. Right. But the more that you, you know, from the first shot, second shot, if that may go to the fourth shot or you may miss the first two, hit the one, miss the, you know, the next three. Right. So if you don't have someone in your life that understands the mental approach or understands the importance of the mental approach, then, you know, what I mean, it, it's going to be really, really tough to to lock back in um, yeah. because let's say, you, you know, one bad game could have a spiraling effect if you don't have that confidence like we talked about, because confidence, you know, comes in uh, various shapes and sizes. Right. Somebody could have a terrible game, but, you know, in their mind and could be a low level player, 
but in their mind, they're a high level player and, and you know, just a bad game. And they're able to get out of their like, you know, snap of a finger, mm-hmm. right? Next game, they're locked in and they're ready to go. Now, you know, there's some very elite players that, uh, you know, may have a two game bad stretch and, and they're just like down in the dumps and mentally it's, you know, yeah. They may not say it, but mentally it, it is eating them away because they can't figure it out. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming this is something when you haven't worked on your game and you may go to a men's league game or you go and play pickup or something like that, it's like riding a bike, yeah. right? Like you truly don't lose your shot um, or your, your playing abilities, right? You get slower if you haven't been playing, you know, as much, yeah. um, you know, all of these things, but for 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 confidence and stuff like that now it's kind of like free range right it's like oh it's not we're not playing for a championship or uh you know the pressure decreases or like now you're out of your your playing career right but you know during mm-hmm. a player's playing career they don't you know what i mean that's all that they know they you know and majority of players are striving to be the best that they can yeah. and again they put a ton of pressure on themselves so you know tapping out of that you know, bad two game because bad two game feels like bad 20 games. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, so you know, having a, a trainer or an influence, a mentor, someone that understands the mental approach is, is very, very, very important mm. uh, in having in your inner circle. Nice. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, man. And um, quickly before the next question, you mentioned two books. Mm-hmm. What, what were those two books that you? Yeah. So two books that have, have really changed my life are Relentless by Tim Grover, mm. you know, the world-renowned trainer from Michael Jordan, Kobe, mm. Kevin Durant, all of them. Uh, incredible book, mm. uh, and I highly recommend that book. Um, and then the other one is uh, The Magic of Thinking Big. Mm. Uh, the Magic of Thinking Big is is more on the, the personal development side of things, you know, confidence, uh, how to gain confidence. I mean, it goes into a large amount of information on how to gain confidence, um, how to, you know, have a, a vision, a, a, you know, a, a three to five year plan um, and, and basically like self-talk. Um, mm. And that, that book was a, a game changer for me. I didn't get that book. I didn't get a hold of that book until I was maybe 24, 25. Mm. Cause you know, coming up in school, I never, I never read. I would always try to get the spark notes and yeah, everything like that. I, I didn't understand the importance of reading. I didn't understand the importance of knowledge, and I didn't even know what personal development books were. Yeah. But it, that that personal development books changed my life. And um, and although Relentless is more on the basketball and understanding what work ethic is, there's you know three core types of work ethics and he'll go he goes over it throughout the whole book and he incorporates the Dwayne Wade, the Michael Jordan, uh Kobe and and how you know each individual and 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 other players he's trained match these certain groups or you know labels of uh what he considers being uh relentless. A lot of the basketball players have loved that book, uh, obviously because it, it is is basketball related, but you know, every one of my my players that have read The Magic of Thinking Big, one, you can apply it to basketball, and two, it, it's actually for life. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, for me, that's the most important thing because basketball is, is only so little of what being a trainer truly is. For me, it, it's being a mentor, uh, being a big brother, being a father figure to, to a lot of these players. Um, so for, for me giving information and one, like I told you, I didn't even know, I didn't understand the importance of reading, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, all these teachers, they give you books, but it's not truly things that you're interested in, right? Like if you're, you have history class, you have English class, you have math class, right? But yeah. if you're not really interested in history, then you're probably not going to be truly interested in what the book that you have to read for your history project or your history book report Right. But yeah, um, it's also when, something like when, when you're told to it's ironic because I've I've now gone back and read multiple books that I was previously assigned and that I had cheated or spark noted in the, in the past. Yeah. But now that 
it's my own choice to read them. Now, now I'm into it. It's something about right. being assigned homework. And as a student athlete, it's like you really just don't have time to read whole books when you're trying to right. <laughs> study for right, tests right. and stuff. So, yeah, I had the same Absolutely. experience. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I ask a lot of the younger players, hey, what's your favorite book? Mm. And a lot of them don't have one. Yeah. Right. Because very much like you and myself, we didn't like to read. Yeah. And and it's not like somebody's telling us to go read a relentless that we can look at and we can find some of our favorite basketball players and see what their work ethics would like, see the behind the scenes and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. That's the advantage of having that understanding of how important knowledge and, and reading actually is and uh and in a particular field right if it is basketball um or you know the mental approach and having those you know books on hand is is a huge huge factor which well at least i believe is a huge benefit yeah i kept uh i kept the meditations of marcus aurelius by my bed during my senior season and i read just a couple sections each morning and i really attribute it to some of my mental clarity that season. I think it was huge. And so I, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's, so a lot of players would like to have a good trainer. And mm-hmm. having been in the business and seen other trainers and having developed your own philosophy, and I know your reputation. I've spoken to people who I'm close with who know you well that you are a man of principle and that you are an ethical person and that you really want the best for your players. And so if you were, let's say that you, you can't train someone, but you're going to advise someone who's in like another state who's looking for a trainer, what kind of things, how would you help an athlete vet a trainer in order to find a good one? What are some red flags or green, or green flags to look for when you're looking for a trainer? Um, I think a lot of people in our or in this generation believe that the blue check and the you know thousands to hundred thousands of followers Mm. is a big thing on credibility Mm. when in all actuality it's not Mm. you know i know a ton of very credible trainers within the nba within high level overseas that don't even have, you know, 6,000 followers, Mm. um, 4,000 followers because of them not believing in the importance of social media and branding themselves. Mm. Um, Social media is used in various ways and it's not a good indication on who's a great trainer and, and who's not a great trainer. I believe that one, the power of referral you know, let's say there's a guy or a gal on Instagram who has, you know, let's just say a thousand followers, 2000 followers around there. And, you know, you can go to their page and nine times out of 10, they probably have a, um, their name, their screen name in the, their Instagram name in, uh, in the bio. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody for the most part is accessible. Hmm. Right. So you can click on that name and you can reach out to that individual and you can see if they're going to respond back. Right. Hmm. That's kind of the the point of a a direct message. Right. You send a message, you see if if they answer. Right. Hmm. Nine times out of 10, you know, depending on how, you know, uh, famous this person, quote unquote, famous this person is or whatnot, you know, majority of the time they're going to see it. Now, is everyone going to answer? No. But if you want to see who's a good trainer, the power of referrals. So see what these individuals say about this, you know, this certain trainer. That's mm-hmm. one thing I, I, I really believe. And if you really want to know, then you should ask some of the players mm-hmm. on what they believe about that trainer. If you come across, right, like I've seen a handful of people that I randomly come across in an Explorer page if I'm there. Right. Because it, the Explorer page is used for things that you uh, would interest you. Mm. Right. So for me is, you know, weight training, obviously basketball, music. Um, so all of these things come up on my Explorer page. Um, so I see a handful of trainers that I've never seen in my life. Right. So if I was to go to their page and I wanted to find out, quote unquote, how good they are, 
I would reach out to some of their players and see, you know, how what what the, what their training is like. Who are they as an individual? Um, I think that is a good um, way that a player could, you know, see within their city uh, how good an individual is. Obviously, if you see their content and you know how they are approaching moves or are they specific in in teaching you know a certain move for that particular post is this is it the style that you really resonate with you know is that you know the type of style that you want to go with for for training because obviously there's a lot of trainers out there that value a certain type of ball handling uh you know dribbling over dribbling although it looks really really cool does that translate to the basketball court nice nice i think that's great advice so yeah i think that can be actionable for anyone who's out there looking for a good trainer because it can be kind of difficult there's so many options and sounds like the one of the main points you're making there is it's not just about clout on Instagram for right. how, how, how much they're going to actually help you in your game and in your life. So that's really great. You got time for uh, one more question here? Oh, absolutely. Cool. Okay. Are you familiar with the Pareto principle? I am not. It's like the 80-20 rule. It's this, it's this um, rule. It's kind of like a law of nature and it's, it's a bit controversial, but it seems like to be somewhat well-established. It's, it's the law that in a lot of domains, 80% of the results come from 20% of the inputs. So some examples in business, you know, in a lot of companies, a lot of data sets show that 20% of the customers are responsible, are responsible for 80% of the profits earned in a company. In language, 20% of the words account for 80% of the words used. Clothing and lifestyle, most people only wear, you know, 20% of their clothes 80% of the time. And income seems like regardless of the economic system that's set up over time, it'll get to the point, and this is kind of a tragedy, but 20% of the population accumulates 80% of the income. So I'm wondering, I just put this as a thought that I had today, that I wonder if, if you have, if you were going to apply this to basketball training, specifically on-court training, what do you think? Do you have an idea of what that 20% might be in basketball training? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a big believer in, in this too. And, um, for me, uh, I can't, I couldn't, I can't just pinpoint, uh, whether it's 80, 20 or 90, 10, right? Because I would have to go through, you know, tons and tons of research, right. uh, there was, you know, and, and to me, it's just a self-belief. So at the end of the day, this is what I believe. Hmm. Uh, and I give two, I give two things, the, the 90, 10 and the, and the 80, 20. Hmm. Um, and then that is in the, in the case, of 80% mental 20% training or 90% mental 10% training. Hmm. And that I'm a huge believer in because what I've seen throughout my many years of playing and, and, and training is that one, I, there's two things. One, uh, I can give a, a player, you know, or we can work really, really hard. And then, like I said to you before, a, a two game stretch of not having the, you know, the best results in, in the game that you wanted, right. Can that can last and feel like 20, 20 games worth. Um, so mentally, they're broken. Mm-hmm. Um, yet they're, you know, some of the hardest workers that I've, you know, ever come into contact with. For me, I've learned that, yeah, you know, you're a really, really hard worker. We're, we're really detailed in everything that we do. You know, there's no question on the, on the work ethic or, or, you know, they don't question the training. They don't quite, but it's the, the mind frame. It's the mental, the, the, one, the, the mental mm-hmm. state of what, you know, how easily, a player can affect them, uh, an opposing player, mm-hmm. uh, how, how much a coach can affect them, how much uh, the upper management in, in the organization can affect them. They're obviously themselves, uh, the amount of pressure they put on themselves. You know, there's so many different things. So 
in, in, the, in the perfect world, if your work ethic is extreme, you're completely locked in, you're obsessed with the game, it does not matter at the end of the day because if you get into the game and you're mentally broken by uh, an opposing player or you're having issues on your own, I mean, some, some may not even stem from the basketball court. Yeah. It can be off-court issues, right, that you carry into the basketball court, um, which is another reason why I originally said that building a strong bond with the person, let alone the player, mm-hmm. is very, very important. Because if you don't know the person, if you don't know their background, if you don't have an understanding of what they're going through in life, then you're not going to, you know, then so many things are going to happen off court issue or uh, something in the game that you're going to be like, oh, I didn't even know that about his girlfriend. Mm. Right. Or, oh, I didn't even know about his father like that. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? And so that's where people have to have this trust in you to have the, these conversations because they're not having them. Mm. And nobody wants to talk like this, too. You know, it's ego. No one wants to tell them, you know, tell another person that, you know, there there's a weakness in them, you know, let alone males. A lot of males have a lot of pride, a lot of ego, and they don't want to tell somebody else about their problems that they're having or they don't even know that they're true problems. Yeah. Right. They just go upon life and and, and think that it's going to get better. And then, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a big believer in, in religion as well. Right. But. Religion can only go so far. You can only, you can pray so much, but if you don't believe in those prayers too, hmm. if there's not conviction in those prayers too, then the prayer is almost irrelevant, hmm. right? Because you're you you don't believe. You're not really believing, and you're also not saying the right words, right? Like I need to, so you know so many people come to me, uh, you know, family from parents to players that I need to get better in this aspect. Right. Let, let's just say I, I need to get a floater. Mm-hmm. Right. No, you don't need to get a floater. <laughs> right. But but because you've told yourself you need, you need, you need. Mm-hmm. Right. Then this is what you truly believe. Mm-hmm. Right. And they may need a floater. They may need to incorporate a floater. But if you're putting an importance on a need instead of I will, you know, I, I, I'm going to obtain this or there's just certain things that you need to tell yourself um, and you don't, you may not even know that you're saying on a consistent basis, uh, like I, you know, I hope to get a, a division one scholarship. Well, if you continue to hope, then it's probably not going to happen mm. because you're, you continually hope, mm. right? But that's the power of, of, uh, of being able to say these things in, in the correct form to yourself. Um, I know that's like far from the, the 80, 20, no, um, no, I think that's I, great I off on, a, on a tangent, but I do truly believe, um, that, you know, the, the, the mental mind frame, uh, is 80% and, and 20% in the, in this aspect or, or 90, 10, because, you know, the, the mental approach plays such a huge aspect in, in a player's, uh, performance. And, uh, you know, it, it it's, it's very, it is. It's very important. And I've seen people have second halves of their careers, um, you know, plummet mm. because of the mental approach. Because some, uh, you know, I've I've been, this has been something with me for five years now, uh, the 80-20 or 90-10, right? So I haven't come to do an all amount of research, right? But it is a question that I like to ask people, um, you know, what do you believe? Mm. Do you, or do you believe it's 70-30? Do you believe it's 60-40, right? That this is a you know, I give my personal opinion and why, and then I like to ask people what they believe. But at the end of the day, how important the mental aspect is to this, uh, to a player's performance, is is this, you know, it, it it's it plays such a big role that goes completely unnoticed until a player gets into that position or in that situation. And I really believe, like a guy like yourself or a trainer that has this understanding and, and actually digs deep into the, the mental aspect of the mind. Um, it's kind of like that, that, that game changer in a sense. Um, you know, I have a handful of people of what they, they ask me, what's the difference between me and another trainer is, you know, one of those aspects is, is this, Mm -hmm. I have a huge passion for the mind. 
Um, and I believe that it plays a, a huge performance-based factor in your game. And uh, I think if you get it, get the understanding at an early age or at, at, at the time before it becomes, uh, you know, a, a negative thing, right, where you're going through a couple game stretches of, of, of poor performance, if you can get it again and, you know, get a player and understand the mental approach, man, you know, it, it's, a, it's a big thing because at that point they haven't had that, you know, plummet in their game. Uh, and when they do, if they have that one game, now they've already learned how to, you know, do something at the free throw line, right? Having that, that routine or the, the pregame performance or whatever the case may be, right? If you can get a player and, and have them understand and get your trust as well, um, and you can relay this type of information, I think it's huge. Nice, man. Yeah. In my mind, I'm picturing uh, like a teeter-totter. And when you're really little, it feels to me like well, the, the basketball skill stuff is paramount because if you can shoot a left-handed layup and you know how to make a three-pointer, like you're going to kill. But then as you get older, the teeter-totter starts to shift, 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 shift. And then when you get up to the higher levels of, of basketball or sports, like in college, then everybody's good. And at that point, it really is a mental or a spiritual edge that usually propels a player into you know, separating themselves from the next level and into the next stratosphere of success. So I love that you, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that that 80-20 must be, you know, there's such a lack of emphasis on actually spending time focusing on the mind. Like basketball players pay lip service to the mental aspect of, of sports, and I'm sure it's the same in other sports too, but until you're actually spending time, like writing down your thoughts, like modifying your self-talk, like you're saying, learning how to meditate, um, you're not actually putting in the work. And athletes spent countless hours on their the physical stuff, but the return on investment from a little bit of mental work is is huge. So, I totally agree with that. That's awesome. So, how's your uh, how's your dad doing now? Uh, well, he actually just had a, a, a he broke his femur um about a month and a half ago uh so my dad took a pretty bad fall and uh broke his femur and he had to uh be rushed to the hospital because now he's been going through physical therapy um we've had the, the therapist come to the house and so he's getting back into walking again um but it's, man, you know, my, my mom just texted me last night and uh, he, you know, they went two blocks and within two blocks, my dad had fallen twice. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's uh, for the Weeks family, we we work really, really hard. Like all I've ever known is, is to work hard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is also, you know, why I probably have had uh, the amount of injuries that I've had too, um, because, you know, you have to understand that there is, there's no true off day, quote unquote, but there are days of meditation. There are days of yoga. There are days of stretching Mm. that wouldn't be considered an off day. Um, right. But it's going through all of these occurrences in my life, um, that I am able to now, give an ample amount of information to all of the players, you know, through mistakes that I've made or I've seen. And so, you know, same with my dad, he just pushes through and pushes through and pushes through. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing for my dad is he just wants to be quote unquote normal. Um, so being able to walk without a walker, that's, that's a big thing for him because, you know, he's never dependent on anybody. So for him, he just wants to be able to walk. He wants to be able to live. And so my dad throughout, you know, the weeks has tried to progress way too quick. And Mm. uh, now we're in a situation where, you know, his body is depleting and, you know, he's, he's working too hard and he has to understand that, you know, you, there's only a certain amount that you're supposed to do and just do that. And Mm. as much as you want to, you know, advance and do more, your body at this moment can't take that. And that's also, you know, in, in basketball, you have to understand your body. You know, you have to know how to push it. You know what I mean? And, and to the point where 
when you reach that, like, and that's why Relentless is such an incredible book because uh, he's a big believer in your workout. Uh, the work doesn't truly start until you're mentally exhausted, right? That's when the, the real true work workout hmm. begins. And that is true, right? Hmm. You get out of your comfort zone. But on the flip side, if you are having a nagging injury, you got to know the difference between pain, actual pain, and, you know, mental pain and what you just, you just don't think that you can go any further, right? Like if you have an injury, that is an injury. It is established, right? A doctor told you, you have an injury and you need this amount of weeks or this amount of days to improve that injury. And then you can get back on the corner. This is what you're supposed to do until you can go full throttle again. And understanding that is a, is a huge thing. And so, you know, he's still at his age trying to, to truly figure that out. And I'm still at 30 trying to, to have him understand like, Hey, you know, we can only push it to a certain degree on, on, on this day. And, uh, you know, and just that. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I appreciate you asking though. Cause you know, that for me, that that's a, a, that's a big, big, that's my guy. That's, that's my, my right hand. So, you know, when anyone, yeah. how he's doing it, it's a, it's a big thing for me and I appreciate it. You got it, man. Yeah. I don't know your dad, but it's an incredible story and, um, sounds like he's really a fighter. So I'll, uh, I'm sending my love from afar and, Thank you. um, yeah, well, Breen, great to have you on the podcast. It's been really great to get your insight on these things and to hear your basketball story and all of that. So, um, is there anywhere that I should point listeners to find you? I can link to your, uh, the, the evil social media accounts, um, yeah. in, in the show notes. Is there anywhere else where I should send people? Uh, no, you know, Instagram, you know, I, I have everything. Um, and it, it's B weeks zero zero. Um, so you can reach me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, those are, you know, the, the cool. apps that I use. So, you know, that, that's cool, man. it. Yeah. Yeah. And All also right, thank you for the opportunity too. I, I truly do appreciate you, you know, taking the time to get me on the podcast and, and uh, and speaking with me so thank you so much for that too of course man it's been really great and uh, maybe we can have a round two someday too oh I, I would love that i would absolutely love that cool all right thanks breen take care you too all right, Bye-bye. if you'd like to support the podcast please consider subscribing to my newsletter sunday sauce every sunday i'll send out a small piece of content that's related to the topics i'm researching and exploring on this podcast It could be a quote or an image or a short video or a piece of my own writing. Just something small and digestible that I think is worth looking at. I'll also announce when new content comes out, so it's really the best way to stay up to date with what I'm doing. To subscribe, you can visit billyhanson.net forward slash sauce. You can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter, and those links are in the show notes. Other ways to support the show include leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, sharing with friends and family, or posting on social media. Thank you for listening and for your support. It's a sauce.